Well, this morning, if you could open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, beginning in verse 43, we'll be reading through verse 52. Se habla español. Abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 14, versículos 43 a 52. If you're visiting, and this is maybe the first time that you've been in a church in a while or ever, or you haven't cracked open the pages of a Bible in a while or ever, know that this is a, it's a safe place to learn how to read the Bible, to learn how to understand the Bible. That's what we're all doing, in effect. None of us has arrived. None of us knows perfectly. We're, we're sitting here this morning to be taught of God, to learn what he has to say to us, and goodness gracious, does he have something to say to us this morning. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for over a year now, learning about the life and the ministry of Jesus, who in verse 1 Mark identifies as the Christ, the Son of God. Last week, we encountered Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in agony as he peered into his immediate future, what what John calls the cup that the Father had for him to drink and what he saw in that cup caused him such agony that he sweat droplets of blood from his forehead. And today is the next scene. And we're actually going to Start from verse 41, the the end of verse 41, and read all the way to the end of verse 52. So with that, without any further ado, look down at the end of verse 41 and read along with me. Jesus says, the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? To capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the hour has come where we're treading upon holy ground, peering in on a moment of history that carries more weight than we could ever imagine. We are encountering Jesus, your son, with greater clarity than we could have ever hoped to if you had not revealed him to us in this way. Lord, I pray that, that we would understand what you through, through Mark would have us to understand that we would be appropriately changed and affected this morning, that we would stand amazed at our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The hour has come. Goodness gracious, the gravity in that phrase. In John's Gospel, which is John's parallel account of, of everything that happened in Jesus' ministry, John records that Jesus over and over says, but my hour has not yet come. And in Mark's gospel, you'll remember if you've been with us, that Jesus heals the blind and the lame and the afflicted, but he commands them to secrecy. The demons identify him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and Jesus commands them to silence. Why? Because the hour has not yet come. Because the messianic secret is not ready to be revealed. Everybody's looking for the Messiah, but nobody's looking for this kind of Messiah. But the hour has come. This is the moment that Jesus' ministry has been leading to right now. Friends, this moment, the, the, the events that begin right here in the darkness of probably one or two in the morning on Friday morning, and that would end by three o'clock that same Friday with his death. That moment, this day, is the most significant day in world history. We are peering in on something that is magnificent. You've heard this before from this pulpit, but sometimes we come across a passage when, when it comes to application, there's, there's little more to do than to just marvel, to, to stand in awe, to be amazed, to, to, to marvel, but to marvel at what? To marvel at Jesus' faithfulness. That's what we see here. To marvel at Jesus' faithfulness. Listen, it, it's one thing for Jesus to resolve to do the Father's will. He, he, he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Yep, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He said, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then follows that immediately with, Yet not my will, but yours be done. And it's one thing to resolve to do that. It's another thing to follow through on it. one thing to resolve something. It's another thing to be faithful to that resolve. And today, in this scene of Jesus' betrayal by Judas, 
his abandonment by his friends, his, his seizure by his enemies, Jesus follows through on what he has resolved. My friend, what should you marvel at? You should marvel that Jesus is faithful to what he promises. There is a significant lesson for us in this passage in the garden. Do you doubt Jesus' faithfulness? Have you ever doubted Jesus' faithfulness? Go to the garden and see his faithfulness. Do you doubt that Jesus will fulfill his promises? Do you doubt that he will be faithful to what he has promised you? Go to the garden and see his faithfulness to what he's promised. Go to the garden and see him embrace his betrayer. See him march resolutely toward the cross. So, let's go to the garden this morning. And before we do, two, two things I want you to see. One, I want you to see that this scene is utter chaos and terror. This is, again, this is not a domesticated pedestrian scene where, where just, just this kind of nice crowd that everybody is welcoming and saying, hey, come on in, guys, here's Jesus. No, this is a terrifying and chaotic scene. Notice the word sees. It appears four times in this passage. Mark is telling us something with that. Uh, commentator James Edwards says that this passage throbs with the ominous drumbeat of the repetition of the word seize. Jesus' enemies, they've come to arrest Jesus and they're ready for a fight. Second thing I want you to see, and this is important, Mark wants you to see this. Second thing is, Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control. Every other character in this scene is either bent on violence is marked by hypocrisy, ends up running away in cowardice, or outright betrays Jesus, every other person in this scene. But Jesus, but Jesus remains in control. No doubt, mind you, no doubt in his humanity, still experiencing the agony of knowing what he's going toward yet in complete control from the first moment. From the moment he says the hour has come. And when he says that, Jesus knows that his betrayer is right around the corner. They can see the torches. They can hear the crowd moving up the hill toward them. And the Savior sees it and he says, okay guys, prayer time's over. Let's go. And notice, when he says let's go, he doesn't go away from the crowd. He does not run away. He walks straight into the arms of his betrayer, knowing full well where he's going. The crowd, it includes the, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. These are the three parties that comprise the Sanhedrin, the, the, the Jewish ruling body. The same guys who had been trying all week to trap Jesus in his word so that they could have a justifiable reason for killing Jesus. Also in the crowd are heavily armed men, armed with swords and clubs. John says that this is, this is a cohort, which is a, a word used by 
the Romans for a military detachment, and a cohort numbered, oh, around about 600 armed men. This is a huge military force come to arrest and to kill one man. John also says that they have torches. And just think about this. In the ancient world, you know, there, there weren't large cities illuminated with electric lights. In the ancient world, a moonless night was dark. It was very, very dark. So they've got torches to see their way. Also, if you'll remember, this is, this is during the Passover festival. The Jewish population has swelled to six or seven times its normal size. So there are people everywhere. So out of the darkness comes this huge crowd, hundreds and hundreds of them together, cowardly, wickedly, and horrendously coming for the purpose of killing the Son of God. But in the darkness and during a festival where it would be easy to mistake Jesus for somebody else, They need someone to help find him. They cannot afford a mistake. And into their arms walks Judas. They've been foiled at every attempt. And they cannot believe their luck when Judas walks into their their midst and offers, initiates, offers to betray Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And so they go with Judas. Judas leads them. He knows. Luke and John both tell us that Jesus and his disciples frequently spent their evenings in Gethsemane. Judas knows this. Judas knows this. How does he know this? Look at verse 43. Judas came one of the twelve. He knows this because he was one of the twelve. And listen, we know that Judas is one of the twelve, right? I mean, Mark has told us this much on multiple occasions. He's included Judas in the, in the list of the disciples. So why does, Mark, why does Mark tell us this again? He tells us this to drive home to us how treacherous this betrayal was. John MacArthur says, the man of sorrows had many sorrows. And he can add this to the list. Mark was well acquainted with the facts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And he's, as, he's re, as he's writing this account, he, he hasn't ceased to be stunned by those facts. That this hasn't become commonplace to him. And as he contemplates the betrayal of Judas... He goes, he's one of the twelve. He's one of the twelve. Mark still can't believe that Judas did this. How could somebody spend 24 hours a day for three straight years with the Son of God and do what he did? So horrific was, was his betrayal that today... People don't name their kids Judas. Every year, according, according to the national data that, that's pulled, less than 20 children are named Judas in America every year. People don't even name their dogs Judas. One of the 12. And yet Judas tells, 
Jesus' enemies in verse 44, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. When Peter told Jesus, no, Jesus, you you won't die. No way. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. If Satan was behind those words, how much more was Satan behind these words? When he tells this cohort, seize him and lead him away under guard. And the sign that he gives them is, is a kiss. And kiss, kiss is meant a lot in the ancient world. Common people kiss the hands of nobility. Slaves kiss the feet of their masters. Friends kiss the cheeks of their friends. This is the kiss of a friend. And commentator James Edwards says that it was an act of love performed for a mission of hate. In the darkness, among the crowds, Jesus had been positively identified by his friend to his enemies. And they laid hands on him, verse 46, and seized him. And listen, the the tension is, is already at fever pitch. And then all of a sudden, chaos breaks out. As you hear a sword unsheathed from its scabbard, and the holder of it takes a swing at the servant of the high priest. Luke tells us this guy's name is Malchus. Mark doesn't tell us his name. And, and, and the sword, as it swung, it cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. No doubt, this sword wasn't aimed at the ear. That would be a pretty remarkable shot if that's what he was going for. No, he was going for his head. And the servant ducked out of the way, and fortunately, all he lost was his ear. Luke tells us that Jesus healed that, but Mark says, no, that's not important. I have different purposes for telling you this account. In fact, nobody is named in this passage, not even the swinger of this sword, who Luke tells us was Peter, which is no surprise. If there's going to be some, somebody among the disciples making some kind of rash action, it's probably Peter, and it is Peter in this instance, but Mark doesn't tell us that. Nobody's named, except for Judas. This is actually the last time we ever hear of Judas and Mark. Except for Judas and Jesus. And Jesus. And that's the point. Mark is setting the spotlight on the Savior. He's in control. In the midst of the tension and the chaos, he is in control and he speaks in verse 48. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you. Guys, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Why now? You think you're going to get resistance? Why Why the soldiers? Why the police? Why all the clubs and the swords? You think I'm going to try and run? And why didn't you arrest me on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday of this week when I was in the temple all day long? And you had every opportunity to arrest me. They're afraid of the people's response to his arrest, so they come at night and Jesus mocks their cowardice. They approach him as though he's a violent 
criminal, and Jesus heaps scorn on their hypocrisy. But the end of verse 49, don't miss the gravity of the statement, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let them. Friends, Jesus lets this happen. This does not happen unless Jesus lets it. He is in control completely. And listen, I've been careful not not to reference too much from from the parallel gospel accounts from John and Luke and Matthew because, again, it is important to understand what Mark wants us to understand in his account of Jesus' arrest. But, But it is important for us to understand what Jesus could have done if he hadn't let the scriptures be fulfilled, if he hadn't let them seize him. So just briefly, I'm going to mention a detail that John includes and then another detail that Matthew includes. If you're taking notes, John 18.4. John 18.4. Judas has just kissed Jesus. And John says in verse 4 of chapter 18, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, again, he knows what's coming. And he's not unfazed by it. He's in agony in his humanity. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, says, whom do you seek? Verse 5, they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus looks at them and he says in John 18, 5, I am he. But the Greek of that response does not include the word he. The Greek is just ego eimi. Literally translated, I am. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. This is the same title that God uses in response to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus when Moses says, yeah, but God, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, I am. And listen to this. Listen very carefully. John 18, 6, when Jesus said, I am, they all fell to the ground. Power is loosed from a single word from Jesus' tongue and 600 armed soldiers fall to the ground. This harkens to Psalm 46.6 which says that God could but speak a word and the earth would melt. This is probably what gave Peter such sudden courage He said, I am, and Peter went, all right, here we go. But then he takes a swing at Malchus. The second passage here, Matthew 26, 53, records that Jesus looked at Peter and said, put your sword back into its place. Peter, put that that away. He says to Peter, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. FYI, a legion in the Roman military was 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is saying, Peter, put that silly sword away. If I wanted to avoid this, I could have 72,000 angels here in a moment. 
Friends, God is in the garden. Don't miss that. God is in the garden. And he says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let this happen. I am letting this happen. In these words, commentator Alan Cole says, the secret of his quiet acceptance came out. He knew that all of this had its place in the plan and purpose of the Father. This is God choosing to lay down his divine prerogative to fulfill the scriptures in order to take our place on a cross. And know this. Know this full well. Don't miss this. I feel like we've just got to keep coming back to this. The, The terror, the agony of the previous scene, it no doubt still clings to his humanity. He's resolved, but he's in agony. Yet he proceeds uninterrupted, toward the injustice of man and the wrath of God for sin to be born on himself. He just keeps going. And he does it for you. He's not doing it for for, for some, some vague idealistic notion of love. He continues resolved for you. And listen, that night, there there were many scriptures that had to be fulfilled. And another one of them was fulfilled in verse 50. Just that previous night, he'd promised to his disciples in Mark 14, 27, just a few verses earlier, when when they confidently, self-confidently said, Jesus, we, we will never leave you. We would die with you. And he says in Mark 14, 27, oh, my friends, you'll all fall away. And he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, which says, strike the sheep and the sheep will be scattered, which is a prophecy. And Jesus says, this too must be fulfilled. And so in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. Judas, one of the twelve, betrayed him, and the other eleven turned tail and abandoned him. The moment they realized Jesus wasn't going to fight, the moment they realized he wasn't going to fight, their self-confident courage just drained from their hearts and was replaced with terror. Listen, it wasn't lost on them that there were 600 soldiers. I can't imagine that all those soldiers were carrying only one set of shackles. And Peter had just assaulted one of their group. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, let this happen. And they realize, if Jesus is going, we're going down too. And having said, we will die with you, they run. They run far away from him. And then, 
there's this very strange couple of verses here in verses 51 and 52. What in the world are they doing here? And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? None of the other gospel authors include this scene at all. So if you're asking, who is this guy? I'm reading the same Bible as you. I don't know. Commentators and scholars have guessed ad nauseum. Some, some think it's Mark. Some think it's, some think it's another one of the unnamed disciples. Some think it is really just a random person. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Mark doesn't tell us because Mark says, that's not my point. What is the point? John Piper says, surely the point is that he was so terrified that he would rather be running naked in the woods than be arrested with Jesus. Better to lose his reputation than be dead with Jesus. So suddenly, and here's the point, suddenly Jesus is alone. He's alone. Everybody's gone. A a casual no-name follower who's already distant from Jesus, he's gone. The closest people to Jesus in his life, they're all gone. There's no one left. There's no one left. He is alone with his enemies. Everyone is gone. you think any of those guys ever forgot the last thing they did with with Jesus? Do you think any of them ever forgot that the last thing they did with him was abandon him? The last thing they did with him was the worst thing they did to him. Do you think they ever forgot that? Even though the last thing they did with him was the worst thing they did to him, he remained resolved. And he followed through on that resolve. And he let himself be arrested and crucified for them. For them. For his friends. Because he faithfully loved them. Not because of their faithfulness to him, but because he loved them. On that cross, even that sin was forgiven. Marvel at his faithfulness to his friends. This is stunning. This is stunning. This should confront us with amazement at how faithfully loving our Lord is. And Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13, probably reflecting on this very moment, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Jesus cannot deny himself. He has to remain faithful because it is who he is. No doubt Paul was thinking of this very scene when he said in Ephesians 5, love one another. As he 
loved us and gave himself up for us. Listen, what was the last thing you did for Jesus? What was the worst thing you've done to Jesus? Maybe you've denied him. Maybe you've abused his good gifts to you, the life he's given to you. I don't know. Maybe you abandoned him to live for yourself. Maybe when you were a kid, you committed and you said, I will live for you, Jesus, and I'll never turn away from you. And yet the story of your adult life has looked way different. My friend, if you have genuinely repented of your sins and you've believed in him as your Lord and Savior, he let himself be seized and crucified for you. And the worst thing you've done to him was paid for on that cross that he was marching resolutely to. What was accomplished at 3 o'clock that Friday afternoon was accomplished for you. For you. And kids, kids, maybe you've believed in him. Maybe you, you have placed your faith in him. You've repented of your sins. And it is imperative, it is important that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as you continue to grow up. But your confidence that you will remain faithful to him cannot rest in your own strength because you won't. You won't do it perfectly. Your confidence has to be in his faithfulness to you. He will be faithful to you. That's where your trust and your hope has to lie. He will not leave you or forsake you. And I wasn't going to mention this, and I don't know if we have time, but I'm going to mention it anyway. But 2 Timothy 4 comes, comes to mind. If you know anything about 2 Timothy 4, you know that these are the last words that Paul wrote. Paul the Apostle who wrote a good majority of the New Testament. Paul's writing from prison. And what he writes from prison in 2 Timothy 4 is pretty similar to what Jesus experienced in the garden, yet very different, of course. But Paul says, this guy and that guy, they betrayed me. This guy and that guy, they left me. Actually, only John Mark, a certain John Mark we know, only he's with me. Everybody else has abandoned me. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, 16, he says, but the Lord stood by me. And my friend, if you are a Christian, that will be your testimony until your last day. No matter how abandoned you are by, by, by others, no matter how, how much others disappoint you, no matter how much you disappoint yourself, <laughs> the Lord will stand by you because he let himself be abandoned for you. He was forsaken for you so that you will never be forsaken. He allowed himself to be completely alone so that you will never be alone. 
Friend, he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He will be faithful to that promise. You ever doubt that? Go to the garden. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you not only make promises to us, but you follow through on them without fail. You never have, and you never will, and we can know that you never will because Jesus didn't in the garden, and he didn't at his trial, and he didn't when nails were pounded into his hands and feet, and when he breathed his last. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.